WNYC Studios is supported by Zuckerman Spader. Through nearly five decades of taking on high-stakes legal matters, Zuckerman Spader is recognized nationally as a premier litigation and investigations firm. Their lawyers routinely represent individuals, organizations, and law firms in business disputes, government, and internal investigations, and at trial. When the lawyer you choose matters most. Online at Zuckerman.com. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Uh, wait, you're listening. Okay. All right. Okay. All right. <coughs> you're listening, listening to Radio Lab. Radio Lab. From WNYC. See? Yep. And NPR. Okay, from the top. You ready? Yep. Hello. Hello. How are you doing? We're going to start Thank things you. off today Thanks. with this lady. Zelda Gamson. Welcome hey. to our little spot. It's beautiful. Thank you. She's 80 years old, and these days Zelda lives a quiet life by the sea. On Martha's Vineyard. Did you have some coffee? She visits with her grandkids, does some gardening. We have a bird feeder, and it is the bird show of the world. (laughs) But life for Zelda wasn't always so calm. Back in the 60s, when our story begins, she was a very different kind of lady. She even went by a different nickname, just Z. Okay, I was a smoker 30 years. I started when I went to college in 1954. At first, it was just a cigarette here or there. Letting the bad girl out a bit. And then I got hooked, really, and I couldn't stop. Went to graduate school, smoked, got my dissertation, smoked, got my degree, smoked. And somewhere in the fog, she meets... Hi. My friend Mary. Also a smoker. Loved smoking. Made me feel very elegant. (laughs) We were very good friends. We were part in the early 60s of the Congress on Racial Equality. Together they'd organize protests. Well, we would demonstrate. And the two of them would even go undercover to fight. Housing discrimination. And the backdrop to all of this social change? Smoke. Yeah, you got it. I mean, our houses were filled with these ashtrays. How much were you smoking at that point? Probably smoked a packet a day. I was a worse smoker than Mary. You know, I was sometimes up to two packs a day. Wow. You know, I had kids. I was pregnant. Um, you uh, smoked while you were pregnant? I did. Wow. Yeah. I feel so guilty about that. So at a certain point, Zelda and Mary decide they want to stop. Yeah. yeah. Now, Mary, who'd never been as badly addicted as Zelda, it wasn't easy. It was agonizing. But eventually she's able to do it. Zelda? No. I thought sometimes that I could stop, and so I would. Over and over, she'd throw out her cigarettes. Okay. Done. But then? Then I'd be around somebody with cigarettes. Oh, F. Any reason that she'd give herself. Cancer. My kids. The smell. The fact that I could die. It always lost out to the urge. And I'd always start smoking again. And this is how it would go. Resolve. (sighs) Failure. Resolve. (sighs) Failure. Okay, so this is not the most unusual situation in the world. But the question we want to ask right now is like, how do you get out of this? You know, you want to do something badly, but then another part of you says, no, I don't want to do that. So you against you, what do you do? I'm Jad Abumrad. I'm Robert Krulwich. This is Radio Lab, and today... The little deals that you make when you are stuck with yourself. Okay, so before talking with Zelda, it just so happened that I'd went with 
Adam Davidson, Hi. one of the Planet Money guys, to visit uh, this fellow Nobel Prize-winning economist named Thomas Schelling, who's written a whole lot about the seemingly simple idea of commitment, arranging it so that you can't compromise. I'll give you an example. Here's one from ancient Greece. Xenophon the Greek, who uh, was being pursued by a huge army of Persians, had to make a stand on a hillside, and one of his generals said, I don't think this is a good location to make our stand. There's a cliff behind us. There's no way we can retreat if we need to. And Xenophon told his general, exactly. Welcome, the cliff. In fact, he said, here's what we're going to do. We're going to march our armies so that their backs are directly to the cliff. That way, the Persians will know that we can never retreat. We're bound to fight to the death. You're really binding yourself. You're not binding the other side. Yeah, it's, it's attempting to influence somebody else's choice by restricting your own choice. But then we asked him, what if your adversary isn't on the outside like the Persians, but rather it was you? <laughs> How do you do what Xenophon did to yourself? Yeah, I, uh, I began smoking when I was 17 years old. I, I did quit several times. But I always uh, went back. Ooh. But he did, tell, he did give us some suggestions. Mm-hmm. One in particular that was so awesome, to use your favorite word, I so hate, I... diabolical yeah. that we just didn't think anyone would ever do it. Ooh. That is, until we met Zelda. Yeah. Fast forward a few decades. 1984. Mary and Zelda now live in different parts of the country. I happened to be going to a conference in Vermont, and Mary picked me up at the airport. Right. And I was smoking when she picked me up. Which was curious because nobody smokes anymore. She said, why, Zelda, are you still smoking? And Zelda said, yeah, and don't tell me to stop. (laughs) I was very belligerent. Yes. (laughs) So I went to the conference and smoked. And were they guilty cigarettes? No, they were delicious. (laughs) But what Mary said was starting to worm its way into her brain. Are you still smoking? Still smoking? Still smoking? Still smoking? And when she dropped me off at the airport, I said, Okay, Mary, as if she had been putting pressure on me, which he wasn't at all. If I ever smoke again, I'm going to give $5,000 to the Ku Klux Klan. What? Did she say $5,000 to the Ku Klux Klan? Correct. This was Schelling's suggestion. It can work. But he didn't think anyone would ever do it. $5,000 to the Ku Klux Klan. It just came out of my mouth. You know how horrible they are, right? Sure. So heinous. But her and Mary made a deal. Uh, packed. If Zelda smoked, she'd have to tell Mary to send the KKK her money. Take it out of my savings or something. And you were really serious? You were going to do this? Yeah. But I have to say, after I made this pledge to Mary, under my breath, I said, but I can't be responsible if she smokes again. What? If... She smokes again? If she smokes again. Who's the she in that sentence? Me. You. What does that mean? Well, that means that a part of me, the part of me that was smoking and that might pick up smoking again was an alien part. You're saying you were two people at that moment? Yeah. And she? Z didn't really 
want to stop smoking. She. She, yeah. After the pact, Zelda says that often, when she would fall asleep... I would dream of myself smoking. And she'd wake up... In a terrible sweat. Reach for her cigarettes. But every time, she says, this other thought would just rush into her mind. The KKK. Robes, burning crosses, lynchings. Oh, God. And she'd throw the cigarettes down. I couldn't. The idea of them having her money? I can't even imagine it. Sounds like you really backed yourself up against the cliff. I did. (laughs) Zelda had found a thought that was hotter than the urge. And she didn't smoke again. Never again? No. That was it. Cold turkey. Wow. Look at this. There's a picture of me on a cruise that Bill and I took. Here she is. (laughs) It's a profile picture of me. Look at the cigarette. I look gorgeous there. See, it was that's the best picture ever taken of me. Now, if we are many people on the inside, and we've talked about this on the show before, how like our brain is literally divided into these camps that sometimes wrestle and right. fight. Well, the problem, I think the problem is according to Thomas Schelling, is that these selves never exist simultaneously. We're never at the table together. The one who's in charge never confronts the other. I guess that makes it hard to compromise. Although, you know, there is another way to think about the problem. Things that are offered right now have so much more power than things that are offered in the future. Uh, This is David Eagleman. He's a neuroscientist. And he says, you know, really, you could think about this whole thing as a battle about time. We'll make all sorts of very poor economic decisions. Now versus later, really. If something is offered right now versus later. When you look at the neuroimaging, it becomes clear that there are different parts of the brain that that are battling this out. And the now parts are way stronger. Yes. Here's the key. What she's doing in the case of the cigarettes is she's saying... I know that I want to win this long-term battle, but I'm having a heck of a time doing it. But if I can make the long-term plan tied into a different immediate feeling of disgust, then all I have to do is have the disgust battle the the desire. I see. So what she's done is she's turned this battle into a present tense battle on both sides. I want a cigarette now. Versus I hate the KKK now. Now, Precisely. So it's a now versus now thing. And I think that's the only way we ever win these long-term battles is to give them some sort of emotional salience, some reason why they matter to us right now. Otherwise, it'll never work. And there are any number of ways of doing this. Here is how Thomas Schelling did it. 1980, gather my children together. And I said, I quit and that... They should never have respect for their father again if I return to smoking. And he never, he never did? Yeah, that was it for him. Huh. The thing I like about, about those two stories is that, like, there's a case where, like, okay, say you've got these cells battling in your head. You've got the now part and the later part, and the later part's weak. Yeah. In this case, the later part found a way to trick the now parts. Mm. And this has a name, this kind of approach. It's called a Ulysses contract. In the Iliad... Make that the Odyssey. There's a moment where Ulysses and his men have to sail past the island of the sirens. And Ulysses knows if they hear the siren song, they're dead. Sailors were so attracted to these melodies that they would steer towards them and crash their ships into the rocks and die. So on his way there, before the music started, he came up with a plan. He had his men lash him to the mast with ropes so that he couldn't move. 
and he had them fill their own ears with beeswax. And he said, no matter what I do, no matter how I'm gesticulating or shouting or acting like a crazy man, just keep rowing, just keep going. And so when they got to the sirens, Ulysses, he goes nuts. And he's screaming and yelling and telling the men, go towards the women. We don't want to pass this up. And of course, the men have beeswax in their ears. They're not swayed by the siren song. Because he had planned for this. The present tense Ulysses, by using his men and the rope, had literally bound the future Ulysses to the mast. Because he knew that guy would be weak. We can just move off the ocean for just a moment. Gone. Get out of your ocean. <laughs> Radio. What a weird medium. Anyway, <laughs> what if the bargain that you strike isn't just about something, you know, very, very small and now, like this puff of smoke? What if it's a, a deal that you have to do that will decide what you're going to do for every day of the next 40 years? Yeah. What then? Well, this brings us to a story from our producer, Pat Walters. Ready? Mm-hmm. Okay, set it up. Okay. Uh, okay, I'm in Chinatown. About a year ago, the corner of Pell and Ma- uh, my friend Jenny posted something on Twitter. It said, overheard. I flipped a coin and I lost my life. I flipped a coin and lost my life? Yes. And what's Twitter? <laughs> no, I mean, she, she actually heard someone say this? Yeah, she was just like, she's a reporter. She was just chatting with the guy and he, and he, said, he said that to her. I flipped a coin and I lost my life. What was the context? Uh, well, she was getting a massage in Chinatown. And how would that phrase come up in the middle of a massage? I, I don't. I, I honestly don't know. But well, she's a reporter. Did she? Didn't she ask? She didn't. She didn't I, say, "Get your hands off me, man, and tell me the story." I don't know exactly what went down, but I asked her what the situation was. She said that she basically didn't know anything, but she just heard that. She heard it, and she told me that it was at this place that was like either at one of seven different addresses that she gave me. So I just wandered around. Uh, do, do you know of some place around here called Health Trail? A uh, massage place? I have no idea. No? Wandered around to several different addresses. Damn. And eventually I found this tiny little storefront. There's a little sign with some feet. Hello. Kind of hidden. Oh. You want to see my, my son? And I found the guy oh, who said the thing. Hi. Hi. Ooh. How are you? Okay. His name is Dennis. Uh, Dennis. And I just asked him, tell me about this coin flip. Can you tell me, can you, so when did this happen? Well, it happened about four years ago. I was 26 and my brother was uh, 21. Both of them had gone to college, Dennis for photography, his brother for art. And they'd come out of school with these big dreams. Seeing new places, meeting new people, making a life and making money. But that hadn't really worked out. No job for me. They're having a hard time finding jobs, and they ended up living at home with their dad. Yeah, with my dad. So basically, I just stay at home take picture. And my brother... He's just working at a restaurant. Low life eater. This is basically post-college flail. Yeah. Like they're stuck. Stuck in the middle of the road. That's what happened to us. One day, their dad comes up to them and says, Look, guys. One of you guys gotta follow me. I need one of you. I don't care which one of you. But I need one of you to take over the family business. My father's getting all Just decide I either both of you come out or one of you come out. Uh, so one of them now has to carry on his, his thing. Yeah. What does the dad do? He runs this massage parlor. Yeah. Sons were not interested. So, yeah, neither of us want, really want to do it. That's Kai. Kai Wu. Dennis's little brother. Because 
touching people's food is some kind of disgusting, right? You know, there's always a hairy guy or like some girls like busted toes. It's disgusting and annoying facing a father for 24 hours, seven days a week. Yeah, like, a little more than I can take. Like, I love my dad. <laughs> but you just don't want to follow your dad's footsteps. But the dad says, get over it. It's about family. Keeping the business alive, keeping the technique he has alive in the whole Chinatown. I don't think any massage place or any therapy place will have my father technique. It's a special kind of thing? Yeah, it's this like deep tissue acupressure. It's painful. Type massage. I don't know if Jenny told you that. No. It's really, really painful. Anyhow, they're sitting at home. And this question is kind of like silently hanging over them for days and weeks. Till one day... They're at a friend's place having some tea, talking about their dad, and Dennis looks up at his brother and says, Let's make a bet. Let's do the tea leaves thing. The what? Let's see what the, what the, what the tea leaves say. Well, Dennis says, when you're drinking loose tea the Chinese way, you put the leaves right in the bottom of your cup and you pour the water over them. And usually, the leaves float up to the top flat on the surface of the tea. But every now and then... Every 10 cup, you might see the tips is floating. And the rest of the body is inside the water. So like the stem, sort of? Yeah, yeah. And then the leaf is hanging down? Yeah. You mean like every so often, instead of the whole leaf being on the top of the water, the leafy part just falls to the bottom? And yeah, and just the tip of the stem is touching the, the surface of the water, almost like it's hanging down from the surface of the water. And this is rare? Yeah. So when you get that, that means it's good luck. And is that like a traditional... It's one of old people that was doing it. That's how we understand it when we was kids. So we just decide, okay, whoever get that. Whoever gets the most lucky tea leaves. Win. <laughs> whoever win, you're out. You don't need to work for my dad. Whoever lost, follow my father's footsteps. They trusted their whole future to this? Yeah. It was like a spur of the moment thing. It, were, it yeah, was. We didn't re- yeah, we didn't really plan anything. It's like sometimes people just flip a coin. Like they can't figure out which way should they go. So they just flip a coin. When you pour, pour the hot water in, they were like rolling around like a small tornado inside. They were spinning. And then, once it's done, each cup has a layer of tea leaves on the surface. And Dennis notices, so, whoa, look at it, that he'd gotten one. One piece. So I was like, wow, is that incredible. Then he looked over to his brother's cup. Oh my God way more of these lucky leaves. It was pretty obvious, you know, that he lost. And it wasn't even close. No. Nah. <laughs> Do you remember if he was, like, angry or...? He looks like he was deep in thought. I don't think, like, damn. It was like, it's the worst thing in my life. And it basically was. Because now he was bound by these tea leaves to go and work for his dad. Oof. What, what happened? Did you... The first day I come here to work, I don't feel like touching anybody's foot. So he forced me to touch his foot. Did he have to, like, grab your hand and... He would just sit there, take off his shoe, without washing his feet. Okay, that's kind of disgusting. So he just tell me to try to work on it. His dad eventually said, practice on your friends. I was like, oh, God, no. They still hate me right now for giving them all the pain. When that was gone, do you remember, like, what was going through your head? Were you like, what am I doing? Like, did you feel like you're on the wrong track? Well, um, I don't know how to explain. Here's the funny thing. Dennis says that there came a point. After a month working on my father's feet, I don't feel disgusting anymore. I feel kind of like it. 
He likes it? Yeah. I don't know why. It's just like making me, ah, it seems nice to work on people. Um, I don't know how to explain. I just stopped falling in love with this job. Yeah. I don't know how it happened. It's just that I'm working here seven days of the week. It's like become part of my life. Wake up in the morning, come here, work. Go home, sleep, come here and work. So it's just become part of my life. And when I got a day off, I don't know where to, where to go. I'm just staying home. Uh, let me come back out here and work. Really? That's what happened. It's just that I think that's how foreign love is. You don't know how to happen, when it's happened. It just happened. But it was a good loss, I was thinking. I love this job now. So it sounds like he made this deal with fate, and he just got lucky. No. No. Kai has a slightly different read on the whole thing. Well, so if he had won, would you have had to do it? No. No? No. No? No. Kai says the whole tea leaf deal was really just about Dennis. I think at that point, in the back of his head, he wanted to do it. Just an excuse. I think he was just looking for a sign. I'd have to ask him, I guess. And when I did ask Dennis, he didn't really agree with his brother. Well, it's just uh, how you say it. But he didn't entirely disagree either. Not that because I wanted to do it. It's just like, it's kind of I'm using my brother to push me to work for my dad. That's what, do you, what do you mean by that? I don't think he wanted to make his own decision. It might be better I'll just work for my dad, but I don't want to face him. So if my brother just pushed me, okay, I'll be facing him. Ah. That's, that could be what happened. So he just needed a push. All right. What a wimpy thing to do, though. You know, when you think about it? Why is that wimpy? Well, I mean, he he wanted to be a masseuse, you know? And he, he didn't, didn't know what he wanted. You know, he knew, and he set up his brother to make him do it. So no, it's, it's very no. If, if you call it wimpy... I call it wimpy. I call it uh, powerfully wimpy. <laughs> muscularly wimpy. Meaning what? What does that mean? Meaning that... Uh, oh, I got one for you. I'm going to lay this. You ready for this? Maybe the new strength is understanding your own wimpiness. What do you think about that? Ooh, I just, I just tied you into a philosophical <laughs> knot right there, buddy. You're going to be thinking about that one for years. I'm thinking about it. I'm overthinking no, just, about just, it. Just take it in. Take it in. The complexity. <laughs> <laughs> Can I speak now? Yeah, David's going to say something. This is who we are. I mean, that's the reality on the ground. We're just weak. We need help. And I actually think this gives this gives us a new way to think about and understand virtue. I think it gives us a much richer view of human nature. Thanks to Pat Walters, our Chinatown correspondent, and to Thomas Schelling, who's written many, many books, including The Strategy of Conflict, and to Adam Davidson from the Amazing Planet Money team, and to David Eagleman, whose latest book is Incognito. We'll be right back. Hey, guys, it's David Eagleman. Radiolab is funded in part by the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation, enhancing public understanding of science and technology in the modern world. Hi, this is Zelda Gamson calling. More information about Sloan at www.sloan.org. Radiolab is produced by WNYC. And distributed by NPR. Okay. I hope, that, hope that's okay. End of message. WNYC Studios is supported by Zuckerman Spader. Through nearly five decades of taking on high-stakes legal matters, Zuckerman Spader is recognized nationally as a premier litigation and investigations firm. Their lawyers routinely represent individuals, organizations, and law firms in business disputes, government and internal investigations, and at trial. 
when the lawyer you choose matters most. Online at Zuckerman.com. Radiolab is supported by TurboTax. TurboTax experts make all your moves count, filing with 100% accuracy and getting your max refund guaranteed. So whether you started a podcast, side-hustled your way to concert tickets, or sold Hollywood memorabilia, switch to TurboTax and make your moves count. See guarantee details at TurboTax.com slash guarantees. Experts only available with TurboTax Live. Hi, I'm Adam Grant, host of the podcast Rethinking, a show where I talk to some of today's greatest thinkers about the unconventional ways they see the world. On Rethinking, you'll get surprising insights from scientists, leaders, artists, and more. People like Reese Witherspoon, Malcolm Gladwell, and Yo-Yo Ma. Hear lessons to help you find success at work, build better relationships, and more. Find Rethinking wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I'm Jad Abumrad. I'm Robert Krilwich. This is Radiolab, and today... Today, we are trying to figure out how to make a deal with yourself when most of you doesn't want to do what the rest of you wants to do. <laughs> right. And we've talked about these kinds of deals when it comes to avoiding uh, the sirens, uh, quitting smoking. Figuring out what to do with the balance of your life. Now, we're going to change things a bit. Let's say, instead of being an addict, let's say you're just... A writer. Yeah. And you want to be inspired you want the words to come and this is a very typical situation they're not coming no no words so the question is in that kind of situation what kind of deals could you make with yourself to get the words out this is uh this is fanciful my friend oliver Sachs, the neurologist and the writer um, he made a deal which frankly i i find this kind of astonishing a bargain with creativity i will tell you although i probably shouldn't uh the first book I wrote, Migraine, um, was very obstructed. And by obstructed, he means he just got stuck. Yes. Day after day, he, he tried to write something down, and it just didn't come. And I was getting desperate on the matter. And finally, on September the 1st of 1968, I said to myself, you have 10 days to write this book. If it is not done then, you commit suicide. Whoa. And under the imagined threat, which seemed to terrorize me in a way. You're, you're, what, the, the other half of you thought that the first half of you meant it? Yes. Did the first half of you mean it? I, I don't know. But, but the result of this was that after months of, of stewing and not doing anything, I started work and what started as a, as a fearful task soon became a joyful task with its own momentum. And suddenly he had this feeling that there was something inside him. Some engine inside me, uh, a wonderful associative engine which, which, which weaves thoughts together, brings unexpected things into apposition. It had kicked into gear and was kind of pulling things out of him and putting them right there onto the page. I felt the book was being dictated to me. Really? Uh, I, I, I was passive, I was the bridge, I was the transmitter. Um, and in fact, I finished the book a day early. <laughs> <laughs> That's a strange way to kick yourself in the pants, I have yeah, to say. Uh, yeah, well, well um, for me, a deadline sometimes is felt almost literally as such. 
this is not an easy way to go to work every day, I wouldn't think. I don't think one can make bargains like that. Definitely not too often. And it will have a cost. Oliver, of course, did that only once. But the story he told got us thinking, is there a bargain that you can make with yourself? Your creative self. That somehow avoids this terrible cost. Yes, uh, yeah. Um, that as as led me like okay. to a, okay. a woman who just does it differently. Well, I have this fascination with trying to figure out how you can live a lifetime of creativity without cutting your ear off. <laughs> you know what I mean? And who is who is that? Oh, I'm Liz Gilbert. And, well, just something a little bit more. <laughs> Which Liz Gilbert uh, are you? Am, uh, <laughs> I'm the Liz Gilbert who wrote the book called Eat, Pray, Love. I guess that's the way I should describe myself because that's how my obituary will read. Eat, Pray, Love, in case you were born under a rock or raised by wolves, is one of the most popular books ever, ever, ever in the world. It became even more popular when the book became a movie. And guess who played Liz? Liz Gilbert is remarkable. Julia Roberts. Her courage in the way... America's sweetheart. And the success was great, but she says, you know, it was also kind of frightening because there she was, back at home. In front of the same old blank page. With a new question. How will you ever outdo what you did last time? Suddenly, she's back where Oliver was. Obstructed. She didn't think that the success was going to be there the last time. So was the last time a fluke? Do I even have another big book in me? Dangerous recipe for madness. Madness. But then she thought back to a conversation that she once had with... Who? Who? Tom Waits. Measure is the river of huh? the world. Tom that Waits. That Tom Waits. That's sort of where this all began, was that I was, I was a journalist for GQ, and I did an interview with him. And he spoke about the creative process, I think, more articulately than anybody I have ever heard. Um, and he was talking about how every song has a distinctive identity that it comes into the world with, and it needs to be taken in different ways. And he said, you know, there are songs that, that you have to sneak up on, like you're hunting for a rare bird. And there are songs that come fully intact, like a dream taken through a straw. And there are songs that you find little bits of, like pieces of gum underneath the desk. And you scrape them off, and you put them together, and you make something out of it. And there are songs, he said, that need to be bullied. Um, where he said he's been in the studio working on a song, and the whole album is done. And this one song won't give itself over. And he said, you know, his, everyone's gotten used to seeing him do things like this. He'll march up and down the studio talking to the song, saying, The rest of the family's in the car. We're all going on vacation. You coming along or not? You got 10 minutes or else you're getting left behind, you know? And he's like, you got to shake it down sometimes. Liz says that interview was maybe the first time she thought of inspiration as, a, as, a, as an it. And I remember feeling my own center of gravity shift and thinking, wait, you're allowed to talk to this thing? If the source of her ideas was outside her, then she could get some distance from it, maybe negotiate with it, even fight with it, instead of beating herself up all the time. Right. And the this, this story that I love that he told me about where his artistic anxiety ended and his sort of new artistic liberation began was when he's driving along the freeway in Los Angeles in like eight lanes of traffic one day and this little fragment of a beautiful song comes into his head and he has no way to record it he's got no pencil he's got no tape recorder and he's in eight lanes of stressful traffic and he immediately starts to feel all the old pressure that he's felt his whole life of I'm not good enough. I, you know, all the artistic struggle, right? I, I can't do it. I'm not good enough. I'm going to lose it. I, it'll haunt me forever. 
And then he just backed off from it. And instead, he established that negotiating distance between him and the melody. And he looked up at the sky and he said, excuse me, can you not see that I'm driving? <laughs> if you're serious about wanting to exist, I spend eight hours a day in the studio. You're welcome to come and visit me while I'm sitting at the piano. Otherwise, leave me alone and go bother Leonard Cohen. Oh, that's very bold. It is. I think that's what she wants. She wants you to push back, and she wants you to set some terms and some boundaries. She doesn't Until want you... Until you go to the Leonard Cohen concert two years later, right. and there it is. <laughs> so very kind of you to come to this. Now, this idea that uh, somehow the creative act comes from outside you, you get a visit from a somebody. This isn't a new idea. This is a very old idea. You know, the Greeks would call it the muse, the Romans called it the ingenium, the genius, which was an interesting idea because it's not the way we use genius today, right? Today we say that a person is a genius, and back then they would have said a person had one. Um, and again, it's this separation so that the, the creative person has this externalized collaborator. So this is a tinkerbelly kind of a thing? It sprinkles you? It has little wings and it I think flies it away? <laughs> I think it depends on the process. I mean, it's got a lot of names because... It takes a lot of forms, right? Huh. And and we're talking about all this as though these are I actually kind of believe this. <laughs> because I don't think it would work otherwise. But I kind of do believe that the world is being constantly circled as though by Gulfstream forces, ideas and creativity that want to be made manifest, and they're looking for portals to come through in people. And if you don't do it, they'll go find someone else, you know? And and so you have to convince it that you're serious, and, and you have to show it respect, and you have to talk to it and let it know that you're there. Hmm. Like for the last few years, there's been a novel that has been sort of stirring in me, and I haven't had time to give it the attention it wants me to give it. But every day I talk to it, and I have a little conversation with it, and I say, listen, I'm, I'm in April. I will be with you. I want you to stay. Don't let me wake up and read in the New York Times that someone else wrote you. Um, <coughs> stay here with me. I'm coming. This sounds like just like a golden <laughs> retriever or something. You have to keep petting it. Actually, that's probably as good a metaphor for me as any because I would relate to that, being half golden retriever myself and <laughs> and liking dogs. That's great. And when you say you talk to it in its golden retriever form. That's our producer, Pat Walters. Like, do you actually talk to it? Yeah. Out loud? <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> I do. I talk. That's why I have to work alone in a quiet room because I talk to it all the time. And I ask it questions. I say, what, do you, what is it that you want me what is it you want me to be doing here? Because you seem to be resistant to what I'm trying to do here. Like, show me, give me a clue. Um, like, I, 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 the title of Eat, Pray, Love was the last thing that came of that book. Mm-hmm. And, and the book was about to be published, and it had any number of ridiculous, stupid titles that, that I'm not even going to tell you because they're so embarrassing, and they're so not what that book was meant to be titled. And I ended up writing an email to all my friends and saying, the subject heading was title search. And I said, my book won't tell me its name and can can all of you help me and a friend of mine wrote back and said um if you're going to talk to it like that it's not going to tell you anything um my <laughs> book right so i really did that night so I you said, sweet talked it back into sweetheart listen i respect you i love you i honor you i have defended you these last few years i want to bring you into the world but you have to tell me your name and the next day eat pray love just like that. And you know it because it's, 
I know the difference between something I thought of and something that I was given. I can, I can tell the difference. She says sometimes it's the whole scene, sometimes it's just a word, maybe a phrase. And then you have the job to make it into something. Wait, but if I if I say to you, two roads diverge in yellow wood. <laughs> two roads diverge in the yellow wood. So you can write that down, two roads diverge in the yellow wood. Uh, then you're done. Do you know how that poem got written? No. Two roads diverge. So he was working for... I may be exaggerating this because I tend to, but I'm going to tell it my way, how okay. I heard it. <laughs> okay. uh, he was working for months and months and months on a, on what was going to be the greatest epic poem of his life. It was the biggest challenge he was taking on. He was going to be up there with the masters with this. You um, should name the person we're talking about. Uh, yes, this would be Mr. Frost. <laughs> Robert Frost. <laughs> and, okay. um, and, and, and he worked on it for, um, you know, forever and ever. I mean, perspiration, 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 right? And it was 20, 30 pages long, and it was, I don't know what the meter was. Whatever it was, it was the most ambitious thing he'd ever done, and it was arduous, and it probably had sweat all over it. Um, put it down went to sleep, woke up, sat down, and wrote two, two roads. In a, and all of a sudden, in one setting, this tiny, perfect, immaculate thing was created that had nothing to do with what he had just done. Hmm. He earned it. I think the angels reward people who are at their desk at 6 o'clock in the morning working. Um, and he earned it by showing his, his intent to be a great poet. And they said, okay, cool, you showed your intent. That thing you just wrote was crap. I'm going to give you this one. Here's your reward. So, the What night, evidence do you have for this none, form of justice? None, okay. except for that it's a great story. And I like the idea, and I feel like, I really do feel like when they see me working, they take pity on me. Mm -hmm. um, and they say, look, you're showing a real commitment to this. You've been up at 5 o'clock every morning for the last year working on this novel. I'm just going to give you the ending, you know, um, or I'm, I'm going to spare you from that really bad idea you just had. And, you know, I always think of it as like Henry Ford's famous line about how creativity is 99% perspiration and 1% inspiration, which yeah. is a very mechanical way to divide it up. But it also assumes that those th two things have equal weight, that they're the same quality, right? I agree with 99% perspiration, 1% inspiration, but it's 99% oyster, 1% pearl. You can't even compare the, the matter. Like, it's a bargain to get 1% inspiration. You know, it's, it's a miracle. I could get with the muses. Mm-hmm. Sort of. What do you mean? Well, I think it's interesting that you can hear at one point she says that she believes it. I actually kind of believe this. <laughs> and then at another point she says, it just makes a good story. But it's a great story, and I like the idea. So you can hear her negotiating yeah. with the idea. Yeah, of course. She's a little bit between the two thoughts. Which is interesting. I mean, you know, you know, a, a serious neuroscientist would tell you... That it's all in your unconscious. And it's, all, it's all you all the time. Yeah. But another way to think of it is... Uh, is to say that you got a gift and and therefore it's not all about you when it's bad and it's still about you when it's good, but it's not all about you. It's just this business of all. Mm -hmm. okay. This is a form of well-organized modesty. It's a nice phrase. I'm just gonna, just gonna go with that. Yay! <laughs> it's time for us and our fairies to go to break. <laughs> this is Drew Lewis from Salt Lake City. Radio Lab is supported in part by the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation in 
enhancing public understanding of science and technology in the modern world. More information about Sloan at www.sloan.org. WNYC Studios is supported by Zuckerman Spader. Through nearly five decades of taking on high-stakes legal matters, Zuckerman Spader is recognized nationally as a premier litigation and investigations firm. Their lawyers routinely represent individuals, organizations, and law firms in business disputes, government, and internal investigations, and at trial. When the lawyer you choose matters most. Online at Zuckerman.com. Radiolab is supported by TurboTax. TurboTax experts make all your moves count, filing with 100% accuracy and getting your max refund guaranteed. So whether you started a podcast, side-hustled your way to concert tickets, or sold Hollywood memorabilia, switch to TurboTax and make your moves count. See guarantee details at TurboTax.com guarantees. Experts only available with TurboTax Live. Hey, I'm Jad Abumrad. I'm Robert Krulwich. This is Radio Lab Today. We are continuing our search for ways to, outside oneself, solve the problems going on inside oneself. Ooh, that was nicely done. Now, thinking back to Oliver Sacks' story that we heard at the top of the last segment, mm-hmm. this notion that you one might use terror to, uh, to broker a relationship with one's creative self or one's perhaps addicted self. Let's take that idea and kick it up a notch. All right, let's, just, oh, let's Maybe just, two notches. Let's just go, I mean. For that, we go to reporter Gregory Warner. Reporter with Marketplace. Though Marketplace was nice enough to let us borrow him for this story he's about to tell. Right. Now, you understand that I have no idea, Gregory, none whatever, what is you're about to tell me. I'm, I've been purposely kept in the dark. Yes. Unless, of course, you have already told me somewhere on the street somewhere. <laughs> no, I'm sure you've forgotten that. Okay. Yeah. okay. So, Greg, just set it up. How did you uh, find out about this? I, I heard about it um, while washing dishes, actually. Oh. My wife was telling me about a friend's ex-boyfriend who was an alcoholic. Friend's ex-boyfriend. Friend's ex-boyfriend is an alcoholic in Russia. He's, he's, he's Russian. Uh-huh. And um, this man di- didn't want to drink anymore. And so the treatment that he got was to have a capsule surgically inserted under the skin, some kind of chemical compound that if he drank again, this capsule would explode into his bloodstream and kill him. What? He was given a bomb. Yeah. That would be triggered by his bad behavior. Exactly. And that's all you knew. That's all I knew. Well, but wait a second. Who would who would do this? Who, who did he go to? Well, that's that's what I... Fortunately, I was on my way to Russia. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and what was the question in your mind? Was was this real? Check, check. So, I get to Moscow, and I hired a fixer interpreter. Her name's Anna Masterova. It's hard to tell what, what street I'm on right now. She had found this clinic that does this treatment. We go in through the gate. We call this area Lungs of Moscow. The lungs of Moscow. Because the wind is coming through this area. It's kind and of we arrive at this sort of large house, a kind of a drab exterior. They usher us immediately into a waiting room. There's a fish tank, there are plants. Wow. Pretty lush. So it wasn't very hospitally? No, not very hospitally. Very, very comfortable. You guys are real lazy fish. And then, we're summoned. Uh, the head doctor is named Vyacheslav. 
Vyacheslav Davidov. He greets us. We, we um, come into his, his pretty spare office. Either way. Can you describe Vyacheslav Davidov? He looks actually exactly as you'd guess a, um, a Russian psychotherapist narcologist would look. I have no guess for that. <laughs> what is that? <laughs> maybe, maybe I'd take that back. He's got a pointy beard and he's got a bulbous head. Bright, bright green eyes. This man is a doctor. And this man is absolutely a doctor. There are degrees on the wall. So usually this capsule is inserted into the buttocks. <laughs> Actually, that's why it was called a torpedo. Because it is placed in a person's body and kept the way a torpedo in a submarine is kept. In your butt? Well, under the skin. If under, oh. And how does, if the person drinks, does it make them sick or does it make them die? He said, you know, it doesn't, it shouldn't kill you. One can never exclude death, but of course the doctor is not going to kill his patient. But person will feel very bad, extremely bad. You will have uh, pains, almost unbearable pains. Accelerated heart rate, shortness of breath, nausea, stomach, vomiting, throbbing headache, headache, visual disturbance, mental confusion, and circulatory collapse. And these medicine can remain in the body from a short period of time to like three years, for instance. But the pill is real? Well, so that's exactly what I asked him next. Is the capsule in some way a placebo? A placebo? Yet it's not a placebo. It's not a placebo. If you don't believe, I can give you a pill, and that will be like coding for one day. Okay. Wait, and you, you agree? took the freaking pill? I said I would. And um, can you give me a pill that would last um, three years? If you agree. Gregory, what the... crazy No, person. I'll tell you what I was thinking. Because at this point, Davidov and I had been talking for like two hours and he hadn't let me out of the office. I had asked to see the procedure room. I had asked to see the torpedo. And so I realized the only way to actually see it was to agree to, to have it done. Oh. You'll be a patient. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You ready? Yeah, let's go. We leave the office. We go down a hallway and up some stairs. There's no lush carpet, no fish tanks, no plants. Was that someone screaming? Yeah. No, it's a psychiatric clinic. Meanwhile, my translator is getting worried. She's like, what if you meet a friend? You know, if you meet a friend in Russia, you have to go drinking with them. I said, then, you know. And I'll die in his arms. <laughs> so he leads me into this room. It looks, I mean, just like an exam room in a doctor's clinic. There's the sink and the nurse, a heart defibrillator machine. Oh, no. <laughs> Can I see the... Uh, and he just immediately ignores me, kind of picks up some instruments, washes his hands. Can I see the torpedo? He then turns and he, he says, yes, there is a cut. He does a stabbing motion with his uh, with his hand. You make a small cut. This is how deep it is. 
So he's going in? Well, just before he's going to actually cut open my butt, and he does this with everybody, he gives you a pill, which is the same drug, mm-hmm. but it only lasts for one day. And then he tests it. He tests it. How does that work? So you take a pill and it'll give you a drop of alcohol. He puts just a drop of vodka small drop of on your tongue. Alcohol. Drop of vodka. Once that drop of vodka hits my tongue, I will feel all those symptoms. Your heart sinks. You can't breathe. In general, a person feels he's dying. Sometimes people are so scared they urinate right here. Maybe uh, uh, can I take it at home? <laughs> <laughs> so I uh, actually no, I don't want to take it. Chickened out. I can't do it. I'm not, I'm not strong enough. He at that point realized he had won. And he shows me the pill at this point. This is what is inserted in the body. Really? This is it? It's so little. 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 About the size of a uh, a tic tac. Oh. A tic tac. Okay. The tic tac torpedo. It comes right off the lips. It turns out that inside that little pill is a very real drug. It's called disulfiram. And it was it was actually a substance that was used in the rubber industry. This is Eugene. Eugene Reichel. I'm an assistant professor at the University of Chicago. He's writing a, a whole book about these treatment programs in Russia. He says this drug was discovered back in the early 1900s. And they found that the uh, workers in the rubber industry were unable to tolerate um, alcohol. This is kind of folk knowledge in that in that industry for a while. So is it like, don't give that guy a beer, he works in rubber? <laughs> I, <don't laughs> I mean, ba- basically what disulfiram does is, is, is it creates a kind of toxic byproduct. Disulfiram blocks a certain enzyme from being absorbed, and it causes all these very real symptoms. So you'd get a little bit poisoned. Yeah. And is this used outside of these Russian clinics? It, it, it is, but, but there is a big difference. Only in, in Russian clinics do they have these long-acting capsules. A long-acting form of disulfiram, which is not something that exists. Uh, <laughs> these subdermal implants, basically they, they don't actually release any disulfiram after, you know, the first week or something like that. So, so if I had taken that drop of alcohol, then I would have felt all those symptoms, but it doesn't last for longer than a week. Yeah. So effectively that's basically... Uh, scam. Kind of, I believe scam <laughs> is the word you're looking for. <laughs> Um, like, how mainstream is this? I mean, is this the equivalent of, like, guava pills or whatever they are, where you, you can find them in, like, vitamin shops, but they're kind of fringy? That's the thing, is that this is not fringy at all. You know, over 60% of the treatment methods offered by Russian narcologists. Wow. Six, zero, 60, yeah. like more than yeah. half? Yes. Yeah, yes. And, and Eugene emailed later to say he was just being conservative. The real number is closer to 80%. Wow. Coded, which happened 15 years before he died. My, my own translator, Anna, her uncle went through this procedure. When he, when he was drunk, he, he didn't care. Before, I remember my grandmother crying all the time because he could go fishing and then disappear for a night. And this guy, textbook alcoholic. Everybody knew that he was drunk. Went through this coding procedure. It's called coding because it wasn't the drug form that goes in your butt. It was actually a, a, a kind of hypnotic suggestion that goes in your brain. But but same general procedure. Doctor in the um, white gown, he was doing something with his hands, some, some gestures in front of Sergei's face. And then he 
Sergei closed his eyes and he had a feeling that uh, some wicked uh, force was pulled out of his body. And had this guy finished high school? This guy was an aeronautical engineer. Oh. My sense is that, that there's some people who suspend their disbelief because at some level they have the motivation to do that. But if it only lasts a week, why wouldn't people, like after two weeks or a month or six months, just start, just take a sip and realize, oh, nothing happened, and they just start drinking again? Yeah. But some people do. Some people do. First of all, there are lots of people who um, do go to 12-step therapy and who do go 60%, to... 60%, 60%, you said that... 80%. Yeah, no, 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 I know, I know. It's, it's, it is very prevalent and very popular. So when no, listen to the story, we thought there's something Russian about this. It, yeah. You know, that it's got a, a sense of submission and belief all sort of asserted by a higher authority with no way to check or to second guess. I mean, even the way in which rep- repression is used instead of acceptance. It just feels very Russian and wouldn't work in Manhattan, wouldn't work in Los Angeles, wouldn't work in Chicago. I think that here's the distinction. In North America, the prevailing understanding of addiction is that it's a disease of denial. It's not about the substance as much as it is about the fact that you're kind of you know, out of touch with some kind of truths about your self and your condition. That's a radically different understanding of what the problem is um, than the one that but underlies it. I'm sorry to interrupt. As a skeptical American, I got to say there is something about this treatment, this Russian treatment, that makes sense to me. seems to me when you're in the grips of an addiction, you've already lost control of a certain part of yourself, or a part of yourself is already in control that shouldn't be, and you can try and kind of love that part and make peace with it and hug it and do the 12-step thing, or you can destroy it, you know, build a wall around it so that you don't have to deal with it. That's what Davidoff is so good at, imprisoning that part of you. Do you know what a panic, a, attacks of panic are? Strach. Like, Very strong Strach. Strach is fear. Fear. Very strong fear. Do you understand what it is? Very strong fear. This is when Dr. Davidov told me that he had trained as a psychotherapist during the Soviet war in Afghanistan in the 80s. He says to me, imagine a situation where a soldier sees his friend on the road. He has minds tied to his body. He has no ears, no eyes, his legs are cut. But he's still alive. According to all rules, this kind of person should be taken to the hospital. But after seeing this, every soldier says to his friend, if you find me in this kind of condition, tortured by the Mujahideen, kill me. Just watching these tortures can drive a person crazy. Is that just something he was having you imagine? Or are you saying that's something he saw? That's something he saw. What he learned from the way in which these Mujahideen were, were fighting this war is that you can, you can kill your enemy, that's one method of warfare, or you can strike fear into the heart of your enemy and kill not only that soldier, but terrorize his whole platoon. And what rules this world? Fear. If he could make you afraid, he could change you. This coding, it completely changed his life. This is her uncle? Uh, yeah. He became very... Uh, I had a feeling that he 
sort of discovered the life for himself once again. He started gardening, he started picking mushrooms. Do you think coding worked? I guess. Yeah, I don't know how it worked, but it did work for him because he hadn't drunk till the rest of his life. Thanks, Greg. All right, thanks. Okay. I gotta say that, that right there, that's a Ulysses contract. Yes. Except for, uh, instead of the rope, you got fear. Right, as opposed to, say, if uh, Ulysses went through, um, went through, you know, counseling about the, the sirens, and you know, it's, it's not necessary. You know, in fact, the sirens aren't that hot. In fact, you'll die. Uh, yeah, and they, you know, you really have a wife, and she's nice too. Anyhow, thanks to Marketplace for letting us borrow Greg. Uh, Greg has a great series he's putting together on uh, what is it? Yeah, a series of stories on Marketplace about the economics of healthcare in in Russia, which you can get to from marketplace.org or also radiolab.org. And if you go there can subscribe to our podcast. Even Wiley Ulysses' wife, Penelope, just signed up the other week. I'm Jada Boomrod. I'm Robert Krolwich. Thanks for listening. I'm Anna Masarova. Radio Lab is produced by Jad Abumrad, Lynn Levy, our staff includes Soren Wheeler, Soren Wheeler, Soren Wheeler, Wheeler. Ellen Horn, Tim Howard, Brenna Farrell, and Pat Walters. With help from Jessica Gross, Douglas Smith, Luke Calzanetti, and Abby Wendell. Special thanks to Kate Edgar and Dennis McCarth. До свидания. Всем пока. End of message. I'm David Remnick, and each week on the New Yorker Radio Hour, my colleagues and I unpack what's happening in a very complicated world. You'll hear from the New Yorker's award-winning reporters and thinkers, Jelani Cobb on race and justice, Jill Lepore on American history, Vincent Cunningham and Gia Tolentino on culture, Bill McKibben on climate change, and many more. To get the context behind events in the news, listen to the New Yorker Radio Hour wherever you get your podcasts.